0: So we continue this morning in our Unravel series, teaching through the entire Bible, and if you have your Bible, grab it and turn to Joshua chapter 7. We're going to go back and pick up, I think it's three verses that I told you we skipped over last week in chapter 6 because they tie directly into chapter 7, but our focus today will be mostly in Joshua chapter 7. History tells us something interesting about Napoleon, that he had a string of successive victories in battle in, all throughout Central Europe. And these successive victories in battle caused him to believe that he was invincible. And so with very little preparation and very little forethought for the long term, Napoleon sent 610,000 troops into Russia in 1812, and he suffered a catastrophic defeat when only 10,000 of those soldiers returned home. Napoleon had grown to believe that he could do anything, that no one could stop him, and all of this came from the victories that he had just enjoyed. And what we see as we look at secular history and biblical history is that victories are often followed by defeat. In fact, this is such a common occurrence that it has been given a name. It's called victory disease. You can look it up. Victory disease. It takes place when the, the euphoria of victory causes a person or a group to be lulled into a false sense of security. But this is not just a danger in military warfare, folks. This is also a very real danger in our spiritual lives. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, warns the person who thinks that he is standing firm to be careful or take heed, as the King James says, that's a strong term, take heed lest you fall. Proverbs 16, 18 says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit or an arrogant spirit goes before a fall. Last Sunday we looked at Joshua chapter 6 and it ended on a really high note. God had just given the Israelites this stunning victory over the city of Jericho. It it, It was a total defeat, it was a miraculous victory And it was such a notable moment that Joshua chapter 6 ends by saying, so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. Wow, what a great way to end the story. Except the story doesn't end there. Because you turn the page, and you come to Joshua chapter 7, and the first word in the first verse of chapter 7 is, but. And that word indicates that something very different is about to take place, and in this case, it's not something good. You see, because of this enormous victory that Israel had just experienced, they now faced an entirely new problem, one that most people would never actually consider to be a problem at all. After the defeat of Jericho, The Israelites felt invincible, man. They they were on top of the world. They were untouchable. And while it's great to enjoy victories in the Christian life, the hidden danger that is waiting behind every victory is a feeling of self-confidence and a false sense of security and a tendency for us to pull away from God and begin to do things on our own. Victories often fool us into thinking that we can handle the next battle on our own. I mean, wow, we, we certainly played a big part in that previous victory, we tell ourselves. So I think we're going to do just fine on this next problem, this next issue, this next trial, this next battle that's coming up. And so we tend to not ask for God's help and direction. We tend to not throw ourselves at his feet, as it were, and plead for his power and his wisdom. And that's why many a victory for God has been followed by crushing defeat. Samson, who we'll get to uh, maybe next month in Judges, Samson experienced several moments where the enemy tied him up with different things, and he rose from his sleep and shook the ropes off, broke the ropes and whatever was binding him, and he showed how strong he was. But then he allowed his heart to drift away from God. And this time when he was bound, he woke up and he said, I will shake these off as at other times before. But then this haunting phrase says, but he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. And he suffered his greatest defeat in that moment. The prophet Elijah, right after he had defeated the 450 prophets of Baal in a jaw-dropping display of God's power. Elijah found himself at the lowest point of his entire life, plunged into crippling depression and fear. Peter. Peter gave his great confession of the Lord Jesus, but then he turned around and denied publicly that he even knew Jesus at all. Joshua chapter 7 highlights for us several dangers. I think the two most important of them are self-confidence and secret sin. Self-confidence and secret sin. So let's see what we can learn from this chapter to keep us from falling into the same traps. I mentioned to you last week that we skipped a few verses in Joshua chapter 6, so look with me there at Joshua 6 verse 17. And this is in the middle of the description of the battle of Jericho and the walls falling down and the city being conquered. As they're getting ready for this to happen, here's what verse 17 says to the soldiers and to all the people getting ready to go and take Jericho. And the city and all that is within it shall be accursed or devoted to the Lord for destruction. Now there's some debate on that exact term there, but it simply means that God said he is setting The plunder, the gold, silver, the precious stones, the garments, all of these things in the city, he's setting all of these things aside for himself. And no one is to take them. And if they do take them, they're going to be accursed. So he said to the people, and the city and all that is within it shall be accursed. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. We saw that. Verse 18, but as for you, Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest you yourself be set apart for destruction. If you take any of these, you will set apart the camp of Israel for destruction and bring disaster upon it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Now, Jericho was the first battle that the Israelites had to fight after entering into the Promised Land. And and soldiers of that day were used to going into battle, and and part of the deal of going into battle was that you could take the spoils of war. You could take the plunder from the enemy. Once you defeated the enemy, it was open game. You could take all their possessions, their gold, their money, their silver, uh, all of those things, You could take the spoils of war, but the spoils of war from this first battle in the promised land were to be devoted to the Lord. They were to be dedicated to him and given to the Lord's treasury. The soldiers soldiers were not allowed to take it from this battle. God made it very clear in the verses we just read. Like I don't think anybody could hear those words we just read and be unclear about what God expected and required. But... You get to chapter 7, verse 1, and it says this, but the people of Israel acted unfaithfully regarding the devoted things or the accursed things. And then it lists this quick lineage of this guy, and you wonder why is it doing that? I think in just a moment you're going to see why this is important. For the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Verse 2, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Don't weary or bother all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled from the men of Ai. Verse 5, And the men of Ai struck down about 36 of them and chased them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent or on the slopes. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Here's the first thing we learn today. Self-confidence is dangerous. Now, what I just said to you is the exact opposite of what you will hear in the world. There are books. In fact, there's an entire section at Barnes and Noble that will refute what I'm about to tell you. An entire self-help section. And you can go in there, I've browsed it before, and you can go in there and you can find books to pump you up and make you believe that you're the greatest thing in the world, that you can do anything you want to do, that nothing and no one can stand in your way, dare I say it, even God. And while I'm not advocating that we should walk around through life with a defeatist mentality, like, uh, who was it? Eeyore. <laughs> Eeyore. On Winnie the Pooh, I don't even know if that's still a thing for kids nowadays. You know, oh, poor me. No, that's not what God calls us to do. In fact, I can't stand being around those people. I mean, that's just an honest confession. I didn't mean to say that out loud, but it, it just, it drains the life out of me, you know? People who are always negative, and no matter what you do, you'll never make them happy. This is not what we're called to be but at the opposite extreme of that is a person who walks around and thinks, I've got this together. Man, i got my life together. I don't need God. I can do anything. As Tony Robbins says, you've got the power within. Hmm. might want to be careful tapping into that. Self-confidence is dangerous. See, prior to this, when the people were getting ready to fight Jericho, they were scared to death. The first group of spies that went in 40 years earlier came back and 10 of them said, dude, no way, we can't do this, these people are huge, there are giants over there, the walls are are reaching up to the heavens, they said in Deuteronomy. This is too intimidating, we'll never be able to do this. In fact, it was so scary, they said, we'd rather go back into the desert and die or go back to Egypt and become slaves again than to try to fight this battle. They were terrified. And that's not a bad place to be sometimes as long as you don't live there, as long as you allow that healthy fear of what you're about to face to cause you to run to God. And that's ultimately what the people did years later. We saw in Joshua chapter 3 and Joshua chapter 5, we saw how before they went into battle against Jericho, God said, you're not going to do this on your own. In fact, there's disobedience among you. And you need to stop right now, you need to consecrate yourselves before me, you need to deal with this disobedience in your life. And then God met Joshua at the end of chapter 5, and he said, and you need to follow my instructions precisely for this battle. And that's exactly what the people did, and they won the victory. But now, now, coming off this great victory, look at how casually the spies described their next battle. There's no mention of praying, seeking the Lord. There's no mention of consecrating themselves. There's no mention of asking God for direction. They essentially said, eh, this is just little AI. I mean, even the name is small. This is a podunk town in the middle of nowhere. We've got this. Don't bother all the fighting men. Let them just hang out. We'll send a couple thousand people up. We'll be home by lunchtime. No problem they forgot a very important principle in life. Today's battle is not won by yesterday's victory. Today's battle is not won by yesterday's victory. It's imperative for us that we walk every moment of every day fully aware of our need for God, looking to Him for power and wisdom and direction and staying alert to the presence of the enemy. If we dare drift off into this area of self-confidence, self-assurance, if we dare allow ourselves to be lulled into a sense of security, we're going to stop being on guard for Satan's attacks. We're going to try to face the next battle in our own strength, our own wisdom, and I'm telling you it's not going to go well. I've got some stories that I could prove in my own life for this to be true. There was a deeper underlying problem that caused their defeat. And I feel sure, not just in my own guess, but based on the character of God and his dealings with people, I feel sure that God would have revealed this problem to them and spared them this terrible loss if they had first stopped to seek the Lord before rushing so self-assuredly into the battle. As we read in these verses, there was someone in the camp who was trying to hide secret sin. And the second thing we learn here is that secret sin affects others. It affects others. Verse one told us that one man took some of the forbidden things, but it describes that act by saying, the Israelites acted unfaithfully. Or committed trespass and then verse 11 repeats the same thing it says Israel has sinned listen our actions have consequences beyond ourselves Adam and Eve just took one tiny piece of fruit no big deal David just lusted after one woman no big deal man who's it gonna hurt When Achan stole those devoted things, I'm sure he thought, oh man, there's tons of silver and gold around here. I mean, Jericho is a prosperous city. There's enough for everybody. What's it going to matter if I take a little for myself? It's not going to hurt anyone. What Achan didn't realize is that our secret sin affects others. His personal actions cost the lives of about 36 men. 36 wives without husbands that night. 36, at least, children without fathers that night. All because one man looked around, looked this way and that, and started sneaking some things under his garments and saying, it's not a big deal. It's just me. It's not going to matter. His sins not only affected the entire camp of Israel, just as God said it would, But this is the part that hits me. His sin also affected Israel's leaders. Look at verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. It's such a strange picture for us, but it's a way of saying, I'm lower than dirt. It's the lowest point a person could reach. They're heaping dirt and dust upon their head. It's like they're trying to sink beneath the earth. They feel so despondent. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. This is huge. This is the same Joshua who showed such bold faith and courageous leadership earlier in our studies. But now, because of one man's sin, Joshua, the leader of Israel, is on his face in the dirt, weeping before God. And worse, he's questioning whether they should be on this mission at all. Listen your sin affects me, my sin affects you. We are all connected, our sin collectively affects the body of Christ. It has been written, no man is an island entire unto himself, each man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. The Bible says no one lives to himself alone and no one dies to himself alone. We dare not think that we live in a vacuum when it comes to sin. This is difficult for me to read this about Joshua. Because in a sense, I understand his heart. I wish I could put a camera in some of the elders' meetings and show you the tears that are wept, or the tears that are being fought to be held back. Because someone in our congregation has chosen to drift away from God. It's crushing. I was sharing with someone just recently, I'm not the kind of pastor who can look at everything as a simple to-do list and go, well, dealt with that problem, dealt with that problem, dealt with that problem, I'm going to go play golf. I can't do that. I internalize all of your issues because I care. And if you think that you can live in disobedience without affecting me, without affecting the elders, without affecting this church, you have no clue what you're doing. It's devastating. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. 28, beside, he had just listed all these things he'd been through, like the worst things in the world. And then he adds this because it was, it was such a deeply personal pain for him. He said, besides all these external trials, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. What concerns? Well, if you read his letters in the New Testament, you'll see. You had to address sin in the churches. Listen, let's not think for a minute that you and I can waltz in and out of here on Sundays and we can participate in prayer and singing and Bible study when our personal lives are ravaged by sin and think that we are going to build up the body of Christ. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And the shoe goes on the other foot, by the way. The elders will tell you, I remind them, us, often, guys, we are all just two or three dumb decisions away from ruining our lives and wrecking this church. This terrifies me. It terrifies me to know what an idiot I am and that if I dare let down my guard, if I dare become self-assured and complacent, If I dare harbor secret sin in my life and I think that it's not going to ruin this church, I'm the biggest fool of all. As the church, we we collectively form one body. We know this from scripture. And just as no person can ingest poison into his body without affecting his entire body, so we cannot hide sin in our individual lives without affecting the DNA of this entire church. So what's God's response to this? And I'm blowing through this quickly today, by the way, that you can dig a lot deeper into this. How does God respond to this? So some verses a little later in the chapter tell us what Achan did on the, on the battlefield. He, he took silver and gold. He took a Babylonian garment, and he went and he hid them under the floor of his tent where his family lived. Is it possible to... I mean, first of all, you're living in a tent. That's a... That's a problem right there. You know know me in tents. We don't do well together. But is it possible to live in a tent with your family and to bring gold and silver and garment home to dig a hole in the middle of your living room floor and bury the stuff and cover it up without your family knowing? Was his family complicit in this? These are things God doesn't give us all the answers to. But this is what Achan had done. He had buried this. The verse says, he saw, he coveted, he took, he hid. You want the blueprint of sin? There it is, right there. He saw, he wanted it, he took it, and then he had the guilt of God on him, and so he had to hide. Same thing with Adam and Eve in the garden. They saw the fruit. They coveted it. They took it. And then they ran and hid from God. Same story is true in your life and mine. Can I, can I just tell you, if there's something in your life that you're hiding from God today, that ought to be a huge red flag. That is not okay. <laughs> because if we feel the need to hide something, it has to be sin. When your kids were little, did you ever walk into the kitchen and see chocolate all over their lips? and go, hey, it's almost dinner time. What's going on here? Nothing. Did you eat that last piece of chocolate cake? Mm-mm. No, why? Because it's, in, it's built into us to hide when we've done wrong. We try to conceal things. And so God has to deal with sin. How does he deal with it? Verse 10, And the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why are you lying on your face? Boy, I could preach a sermon on this. Can I just say this? I hope in the right way there's a time to get on your knees and there's a time to get on your feet. There's sometimes we don't need to pray, God, should I go and ask that person's forgiveness for the way I was rude to them? God says, get up. Go deal with your sin. Verse 11, God said, Israel has has sinned They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them and they have taken some of what was devoted to destruction. They have stolen and lied and they have put these things with their own possessions. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. I will no longer be with you. Aren't you glad there's not a period there? I will no longer be with you unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. And so the third and final thing that we see is that sin must be dealt with. Sin must be dealt with. God said to Joshua, it's, it's time to stop praying about this. Get up and go deal with the sin. And the first thing God tells them to do, we see it again, verse 13. We don't have time to read all these, but God said, first thing to do is the people need to consecrate themselves. They need to sanctify, purify themselves before me. Why? Because that process requires a humbling of ourselves before God and a confessing of our sin. To sanctify or to consecrate means to set apart. God says, set yourselves apart from sin unto me. God is giving this guilty person in the camp time to confess and repent, but Achan doesn't do it. And then next, there's this dramatic countdown that takes place throughout the entire camp. You can read these for yourselves later if you want to, but first it it starts with the entire nation, and then God names the guilty tribe within that nation, and then he names the guilty clan within that tribe, and then he names the guilty family within that clan, and then God names the guilty person within that family. And as this process begins, maybe Achan was looking around at all the hundreds of thousands of tents all over the hillside, as far as his eyes could see, and he thought, oh man, there's a ton of people here. Hey, no way they're gonna pin this on me. And then the words rang out, tribe of Judah, step forward! And the other 11 tribes stepped back, and the tribe of Judah came forward, and Achan must have thought, huh, That's my tribe. That's like one out of 12 odds. That's uh, not good. And then the the tribe of Judah is called out and and then they hear the words, clan of the Zerahites. And now Achan must have squirmed a little. And all the other clans step back and the Zerahites step forward. And then the words ring out, family of Zimri. Achan must have broken out into a sweat but he still refused to confess. And finally, the people were gone through one by one in the family and Achan was singled out and his sin was exposed. And Joshua told him to admit what he had done, and he did, but by this time it was too late because his confession was not coming from a place of godly sorrow that leads to repentance. His confession was only coming because he got caught. That's not true confession. Achan could have found grace at the first step, but he refused. He could have found grace at the second step and the third step and the fourth step, but he refused. He hardened his heart. He was stubborn. Just like we saw with the city of Jericho, just like we see with the pattern of God throughout time, there's grace. Grace, 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 judgment, because sin must be judged. And in the end, Achan and his family suffered the judgment of God because unforgiven sin must be punished. Isn't this a great sermon for baby dedication Sunday? I am a genius when it comes to timing. but it's God's word, we're going through it week by week. I told someone this morning, let it fall where it may. I don't try to manipulate things around here for, for certain Sundays, this is just where we are. I don't know, maybe somebody here needed this today. I know I certainly needed to study through this. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen says, he who covers his sins will not prosper. You want a truth in life? There it is, you can bank on that. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And I close by, by adding this painfully sarcastic twist to the story. You know, the really sad thing about all this, Achan took those items that he wanted so badly, but if he had just waited one more chapter, God would have given him all that and much more. You go to chapter 8, Israel went back, and after they would confessed this sin and dealt with it, Israel went back, and they obliterated Ai with God's help. And this time, this time, God told the soldiers, you can take all the plunder you want, and you can keep it for yourselves. He missed God's best because he was unwilling to wait. He was unwilling to wait. I wonder if there are any areas in any of our lives where we're doing the same. Are there places of disobedience we're holding on to, never fully realizing what it's actually costing us and others? Are there hidden sins in our lives that are setting us up and the people around us up for defeat? I pray that what we would take from this today is a reminder, an alarm for us to run to God while his grace can still be found, and that it would, it, that would fill us with a desire for, for purity in every area of our lives, that despite our constant fall-downs and failures and mess-ups in life, which are so many, are they not, church, for all of us, despite that, we can still stand before God every day and say, God, whew, I got a long way to go, but I'm clean with you. I'm clean with you. I don't want to hold anything back. I don't want to try to hide anything from you. Hebrews 4.13 says, Anyway, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So I urge all of us today, not for your own sake, not for the sake only of your family, not just for the sake of this church and this community and this state and this country and the world, but for God's precious name. May all of us desire to live a life of purity and cleanliness before God. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from Life Point Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him.